All right, good morning, Rio Vista. My name is Sam Caston Smith, and I'm the education pastor here. And we are picking up again in the book of Isaiah. We've been in a series on Isaiah. Now that we get to Advent, we're going to continue in Isaiah because Isaiah has a lot to say about the coming of our Savior. In fact, like the coming of our Savior wasn't a surprise at the way that he would come to Isaiah. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture and Genesis 3, Isaiah today is going to tell us that the Savior is going to come born of a virgin. But if you go back all the way to Genesis 3, right, this is this moment where humanity and God are in this perfect relationship of innocence, naked and unashamed before him, before death and sin and shame and guilt and fear and hatred and all the the vices of sin entered into our world. And then humanity chose to spit in the face of God saying, I want the throne. I want to be in control. And so God laid out all the consequences of our sin and that marked the fall of mankind. But God at that moment gave a promise. And he said that there would come a savior who was going to stomp the head of the serpent, the one who brings about death and sin. And the seed would be born of a woman, he said. That's the first promise of the Savior, of the gospel in all of Scripture. And it stands out really radically because when you go through the Bible, if you've done, you know, a reading plan through the Bible, you get to the genealogy sections and it's so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. What do they all have in common? Their fathers. Right? Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, who begat... But from the beginning, God says that the Savior of the world is not going to be born of a father. Weird. It's going to be born of a woman. Why would God announce that from the very beginning of the story? Because he knows how the story plays out. He knows that the Savior of the world is not going to come forth from a human father. The Savior of the world will come forth as the very Son of God. Born of God, born of a woman. Radical. And so as the Old Testament begins, we begin to see as humanity takes on self-salvation projects, all of the Old Testament is just training us to see we cannot save ourselves. Adam and Eve mess it up. Cain and Abel mess it up. You get to the patriarchs. They're train wrecks. You get to the judges. Total train wrecks. The kings, train wrecks. Prophets, train wrecks. Every one of them, they come along and you think, oh, this is going to be the one who brings salvation to the people of God. And before you know it, they nosedive into sin. They're a mess. And the Old Testament is training us. Humanity can't save itself. We're broken. We're fallen. We have self-centered natures. No system of government. No hero. No type is going to be able to save us. This, our salvation is so desperate. We are so broken that this redemption is a God-sized project. You ever let that sink in? To fix me required the death of God. That's mind-blowing. 
And our God loves us so much that he was willing. So you get to Matthew. This is part of the nativity story. You get to Matthew, and Matthew's going to introduce us to two names that Jesus will take on to himself. And they are powerful names. It's what I want to focus on this morning. And it's going to be Emmanuel and Jesus. Those two names are unbelievably precious, unbelievably costly. And I want us to go forward from this day, going into this Advent season toward Christmas, just thinking about what it took for God to make good on the promises that are behind those two names. So Matthew tells us the story that Mary becomes pregnant. She's, she's a virgin. She hasn't laid with him. She's betrothed to him to be married. And she comes to Joseph and says, I'm pregnant. And he's thinking, he's not thinking in theological terms. He's not going, well, you know, the Savior is going to be born of a woman. No, like that's not what he's thinking. He's thinking, I need to divorce you or you're going to be stoned to death. For adultery. And so Matthew comes along as Joseph is considering, what do I do? As Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. From their sins, this is the personal name of Jesus, Yeshua. When he walked around, this is what people would call him. And the name literally means Yahweh, the personal name of God. Yahweh saves. This is the Savior. And Matthew adds in his gospel in the next verse, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah When he wrote, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And you think, okay, well, how many names does he have? Like, he's called Jesus on earth. That's his personal name. But Emmanuel is a title. And it literally means God with us. So it's telling you the child that's going to be born of this virgin is the Lord, and he's coming to be with you. It's like, think Christ. That's not his name. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. That's, that's a title, and it means anointed one or king. And when Mary is confronted by the angel Gabriel, he said, the angel says, and you shall, be, you shall call him holy, the son of God. That's not his name. It's his title. And so Matthew tells us that all this was written to fulfill a prophecy from Isaiah And so today, those two names that are talked about right there, Jesus and Emmanuel, we're going to take a look at because they are incredibly costly. And I want you to think about this. When you're going toward Christmas and you're looking under the tree and you're thinking about what would I be excited to give? I mean, you kind of almost have to put on the childhood wonder hat, right? What would I be so excited to receive? Pause for a moment and recognize that there is nothing Nothing, not even family coming together, the best parts of Christmas, no present under the tree, nothing wrapped is going to measure up to those gifts. Emmanuel and Jesus, nothing will even compare. 
And if we go into the Christmas season with these two names and all that they mean rattling around in our head, it will put all the stresses of Christmas in their proper place. This is what we celebrate. The coming of our Savior who loved us so much that he would give himself. And so let's go back and look at what Isaiah, when this prophecy is first given, what's going on? To gain perspective, this prophecy that Isaiah is going to give is written 730 years before the birth of Jesus. And Israel, or the, the, Jerusalem, the kingdom of Judah, is in really bad situation. You have a King Ahaz, who's one of the most wicked men who ever lived. I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there. He, he worships pagan gods, and he's the king reigning in Jerusalem. He decorates the temple courtyards with statues to pagan gods. He sacrifices his own children in the fires of worship to pagan gods. Wicked to the bone. And God comes through the prophet Isaiah to him, begging him, turn. You're the leader of my people. Will you come back to me? The people are wicked. They've turned away from me. Ahaz, you're not too far gone for my mercy. Come. And Ahaz says no time and again. And so God comes to him through Isaiah. And it says the Lord spoke to Ahaz saying ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol. Meaning the grave or even hell itself. Or as high as heaven. I want you to imagine that. So we're celebrating getting into the Christmas season. If God came to you and said what's on your Christmas list? Go big, go as deep as hell, go as high as heaven. What's on your Christmas list? Give it to me. What would you ask for? Think on it a moment. What would you ask for? God, I want you to overthrow death. God, I want to feel Loved God, I want you to to take care of all of my shame, my crippling fear. I want there to be peace. I want the world to be made perfect. I want my mom to survive this cancer. I want, I want, what, what would you ask? In this answer, Ahaz, ask for whatever you want. You know what God's answer is? Done. Done. I'm going to bring it about. Death is going to be overthrown. Cancer and disease and fear and guilt and all the things that plague you. The broken world, the hatred, the racism, all the political dysfunction. I'm going to overthrow it all. I'm going to make all things right, all things perfect. Your request, done. And how is it going to happen? He goes on. Of course, Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. He's not being pious here. God had said, ask, command, do it right now. Ask for a sign. And Ahaz in disobedience says, no. Why? Like if God asked me for something, commanded me to ask, I'm asking. (laughs) How many do I get? Can I wish for more? Like Ahaz does not want an answer from the Lord. Why? He doesn't want to ask something of God because if God comes through, if God could deliver, that means I owe you my life. I owe you my allegiance and I want the throne. How many of us go in seasons like that where we we give God the stiff arm 
because we want to go our own way. We don't seek him out because we know what he will tell us. We know what he would say. And so Isaiah, hearing that Ahaz has basically thumbed his nose at God again, then Isaiah just says, Hear then, O house of David, Ahaz, I'm not talking to you alone anymore. O house of David, the people of God in this kingdom, hear this. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And then here it comes. Man, this is a great promise. Therefore, you reject. You won't ask for a sign. You won't come to me. You reject every offer of mercy. Well, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I don't care if you don't ask for it. I'm coming even though you don't want me. I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And before we get into the meaning of Emmanuel, it is critically important that we understand why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. I've seen polls where Christians don't believe that. Well, that's not biologically possible. No kidding. That's kind of the point. God brings forth life where life is impossible. Do you get it? That's why you're here this morning. He brings forth life in the womb of a virgin. Whoa. Well, why is that necessary? Well, for one, it fulfills this prophecy. Two, it means that our Savior does not have a human father. That means he's the son of God. He's born of a woman, a virgin, which means that he comes forth in humanity. He's born the same way you and I are. He's just as gross at the moment of his delivery as you and I were. So wait a minute, you're telling me that he's entirely God. And yet he is coming into the world to share in our grossest experiences. He's, he's fully human too. Yes. But as the son of God, there's something unique about him. He relates to us in our temptations. He knows the pain of the world. He'll know hunger. He'll know all kinds of things. But he doesn't share in our fallen nature. And that's essential. When he goes to the cross, he will take our sin upon himself. But that's only half of the equation. Just as important, he will take his perfect righteousness, the God righteousness, and he will say, now this belongs to you. If he's born of a human father, inheriting the broken nature of mankind, he's worthless as a savior. So here he is, fully God, fully man. Perfect, innocent nature. He doesn't have our sin nature, born as a human being. And it's like in his humanity, do you know what he gets to do? He gets to not only relate to us, and when we pray, when we cry out to God in tears, he's a God who can say, I know, I've been there. But also when he goes to the cross and God has all of his justice, his right, good, holy justice that's stored up for me and you and humanity, Jesus, God, become a man. Eternal God taking on flesh can step in front of me and say, I represent humanity. I'll take your wrath. All of it. But because he is fully God, 
there's enough of him to go around. The supply of his atonement is infinite. He could cover the whole globe and and infinitely more. This is a stunning, stunning promise that Isaiah is given. And I want you to imagine if you were this angel that shows up to Mary and Joseph. And you say, the God, when I've, I've been in heaven... I have seen the radiance of his glory. I've never been able to look right at him. The Bible says they cover their faces because God is too amazing to look at. So an angel that has been in the heavenly realms that's seen this, who hears angelic choirs singing, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who's seen that, who's seen how amazing, or caught a glimpse at least, of how amazing he is, but has also been dispatched down to this earth and has seen us at our worst who saw the genocides, who sees all the injustices of humanity. Imagine being that angel and hearing God say, go give them this promise. Wait, what? You're going to become one of them? You're going to enter into that mess? And oh, wait, you want to be called what? You'll save them. How's this going to work? What are you going to do? Not you, God. You're you're too holy. You're too good. You can't do that. Listen to what Peter says in his epistle. This is mind-blowing. I love this. He says, it was revealed to the prophets that they were serving, not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from above. And what is it saying? Okay, so here's the whole gospel. And this says this, things into which angels long to look. Like, I want you to imagine that in heaven, angels are going, I can't wait to see how this plays out. This must be amazing. Oh my goodness. This gospel, it's insane. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see it. Oh my God. All consuming passion. Can't wait to see it. How excited are you about the gospel? Angels long to look in that word long is really intentional here. It's a pretty amazing word that's used. It says, things into which angels long to look. The Greek word, bear with me, I'm not going too far down the nerd route. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I am. But the Greek word for long, this will sound familiar to seminary people at least, epithumeo. It's like Jesus will use this same word when he says, do not, you know, if your eyes cause you to lust, After a woman, right? Lustfully. They long. It's like an all-consuming appetite. When I was going through college and seminary, we learned about Plato. And Plato mentions three... Hang with me because this is kind of nerdy. Plato mentions a tripartite soul. And this is how he breaks it down. Show me the image of the human being. So he's got the top, which is noetic. And this is how he divides them. All the people reading who were familiar with Plato at the time of the gospels would have known this. Noetic is the rational part of the mind. It's, it's how you think. It's all up here. You're heady. It's doctrine. It's, it's making the right decisions and wisdom. And then you come down and then here, this part of the body, the nether part of the soul, according to the Greeks, is like your heart. It's where honor and courage and virtue and all this kind of stuff. I'm going to make the decision according to my loyalties. That's this. And then everything south of the heart is all about the appetite. It's about pleasure. Man, I'm hungry. 
I want to drink. Sex. Everything. It's appetitive. And it's all about pleasure. And so in the ancient world, they divided the human soul and they would say, you need the noetic. The noetic is usually at war against the epithumatic. The rational is at war against the appetitive. And the spirited part of you gets to determine the winner. Right? Do I side with the noetic and make the good decision? Or do I chase after my passions and addictions and everything else and choose the epithumatic? And you see this. And some of the greatest stories, this is now rabbit trail, some of the greatest stories, you'll find characters represent these different parts of the soul. So you look at this Harry Potter, and you'll see this pop up, and pay attention to it. You'll find those three things, the noetic, the thumotic, and the epithumotic, rational, spirited, appetitive. And so here you see the girl in the story, what does she do? She's always doing what? Reading getting nerdy, filling your head. And then on the other side, you got the redheaded boy who's like appetitive, right? He's always doing stupid things. He's impulsive. He's chasing after passions. And Harry is in the middle. He's making the deal. So let's just look at a couple of these. Here's another famous one. Spock, right? Rational, totally. Like He doesn't have emotions. And then you get to the other side and you get to the doctor. I'm sorry, I'm not a Trekkie. You get to the doctor and what's he? Bones, that's it. He, what is he doing? He's, you know, he's more that guy than Captain Kirk tiebreaker. The show Friends, have you ever thought about this? You got couples. So the middle ones, you got Monica and Ross and he's like the dinosaur bones guy. He's always talking about nerdy things. And Monica, super, super, I almost used, I can't think of the word. But anyway, the word I was thinking of was not nice. The two on the far side, what are they? They're like totally impulsive. They're goofballs. They have no brain. They chase after their passions. But then you have Monica and Chandler. Yes. And they kind of are the tiebreakers. They connect the friends. And lastly, right? (laughs) Totally. You get George, who's the neurotic. That's the word. The neurotic one who's always in his head. And Kramer, who never follows through on a thought. And Jerry's the tiebreaker. The two don't work without Jerry in the middle. And so it's the human soul represented in these shows or TVs. You can see it in your books and pay attention. It's all over the place. And this is saying that the angels, you don't think of angels having appetites or desires, do you? Like I didn't. Until I was looking at this passage. It's kind of like God says this and they go do that. But this is saying they long to be able to see these things that they can't yet see. It's like, oh, I want want to know, what is this gospel accomplishing? What is it? I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't. I'm too excited. I need, it's like a kid looking for Christmas presents before they're like, I got to know. What is it? What is it? What is it? Because the way that God is sending down these messages, it sounds amazing. Too good to be true. And here's the deal. These are not fallen angels. They're perfectly rational. Totally obedient. It's the fact that they're rational. It's the fact that they have wisdom. It's the fact that they're spirited. That makes them long in that kind of way to know more about the gospel. If we could see the gospel fully here and fully here, it would be our one appetite. If we understood how rich, how satisfying it truly is, we'd be like these angels. We'd want to know more. Man, we'd want to know more. 
So what does it cost God to take on the name Emmanuel? Let's walk through some of God's divine traits. Let's look at these. God's got an eternal nature, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God had existed eternally. And Jesus takes on flesh and he's entering time and he's going to have birthdays. He's, God is omnipresent. Jesus will take on flesh and dwell inside of a body. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. I want you to imagine Jesus in the stable and the feed box too weak to lift his neck as a baby. you imagine that? Almighty God in the flesh, too weak to lift his neck. Omniscient, all-knowing. Jesus, when he takes on flesh, grows in knowledge and wisdom. Perfect wisdom, perfect peace. Did Jesus have perfect peace? Oh my goodness, no. His entire life on this planet was defined by a lack of peace outside of him. The only place that he found peace was with God. He was the master of all and he set it aside to come under the law, to become a servant to be under the authority of men. He knew perfect satisfaction in heaven and he came down into this world and experienced things like hunger when he was in the temptations in the wilderness. He's setting aside all these amazing traits and taking on our experience. He was perfectly wealthy. He could command anything by the power of his word in heaven. And when he comes into this world, he's homeless. He has no place to lay his head. He knows perfect justice in heaven. He comes into this world and he will be the most unjustly prosecuted human being in the history of humanity. He knows utter adoration in heaven. Imagine your only experience for all of eternity just being mutual adoration. And to walk into this world to be spat on. Mocked, ridiculed, dismissed, neglected, crucified. He was utterly beautiful. And yet even that, when he chose to come into this world, he doesn't take a stately appearance. When he goes to the cross, he will be marred beyond human recognition. What does Emmanuel cost? Oh my goodness, he can come and relate to us. It's amazing. But this cost him something mighty. All of his attributes, he sets aside, doesn't give them up. But he sets them aside and comes into this world and experiences all this. It's stunning. He identifies with us. And then what's the other name? And and the gospel of Matthew, it says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from his sins. So with Emmanuel, you have God setting aside all of these things to take on full humanity and experience this broken world. He comes down to be with us, but in the name Jesus, do you know what he does? He doesn't just come into this world as a perfectly righteous human being relating to us. No, he says, all your shame, all your guilt, everything that you have, all your darkness, all your selfishness, everything that's wrong with you, all the reasons that keep you up at night, give them to me. 
I'm going to bear them as God, as fully human and fully God. Give them to me. I'm going to the cross and I'm going to pay for them so that you can have forgiveness of sins. And he descends to the deepest point of God's wrath to suffer for our sins. To pay once and for all, for all of them. And if you were to think of our existence as a ladder, look at this. You had Almighty God who is at the pinnacle of creation. You remember that the challenge in Isaiah? Ask for anything from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell. Ask for a sign. Do you know what you get with Emmanuel? You get the heights of heaven that has come down here to relate to you. Do you know what you get with Jesus? You get the same God who plunges to the very depths of hell. What what more could you ask for from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell? This is your savior. And he plunges through every conceivable dimension of existence for you. There is no other being. I want you to get this. This blew my mind when I thought of it. There is no other being ever in history that has fallen farther than our God. Satan himself falls from the spiritual realm to the depths of hell ultimately. Not as far as our God went for you. We fell from Edenic nature to a fallen creation with the grave and hell in front of us if we don't have Christ. And yet he fell through it all willingly. And he went through hell and he ransomed all of us, paid the debt. And where did he go? He ascended back to the throne where he reigns in power right now as a man. Do you get that? That he reigns in heaven still relating. Fully God, fully man, even now. He's one of us. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. This gospel is given so that you may know what is the hope. Oh, is there hope? Man, is there hope. The riches of his glorious inheritance. He's, He's calling us up to share in the inheritances of heaven. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And a few verses later, Paul tells us this, that that same resurrection that took Christ from the depths and seated him at the right hand of the most high God in the heavenly places. What did that resurrection also accomplish past tense for you? And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you get that right now sitting here because Emmanuel and Jesus, because of those promises, you are a citizen of heaven. When you're going through the worst parts of life, do you know what this passage is saying? There's a seat With your name on it in the heavenly places, in the heavenly courts. And God is saying, pull up a chair, come be with me. You know how that happened? God, with Emmanuel, God becomes a man so that he can be like us and with us. But in the name Jesus, salvation, forgiveness of sins, Yahweh saves, what happens? Because God became like us. 
and he suffered for us and he took our sins and gave us his righteousness. Now this is the mind-blowing part. We become like him. Whoa. Why? Not so that God can come down and be with us, but so that we can be raised up to be with him, made worthy of the courts of heaven. Do you get what that means? Stunning how much our God loves us. He wants to be with you. He wants to save you. And as you see, there is nothing, nothing, no barrier that God would not plow through. No suffering too great to win you so that you could be with him forever. So when you look at your Christmas tree and you're wondering what gifts are there, don't forget this one. It's amazing. He is so, so good. We right now have a better standing than Adam and Eve could have ever dreamed. Thanks to Emmanuel and Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your goodness. You are such a good God. Lord, when I think what it cost you to become Emmanuel, to take on humanity and to experience life like we do, to set aside all of those things that you're entitled to. Lord, you deserve those things. But you set them aside so that you could spare us from what we deserve. You stood in front of us. You were our representative fully human to take our guilt and fully God powerful enough to defeat it and raise up from the dead. And when you did raise us with you. And so father, give us faith to know and believe that we have blood bought seats in the courts of heaven. Lord, give us the wisdom to use them. Give us the passions to want more and more of you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.